Can we still find happiness in our daily lives without ignoring the dark reality of climate chaos? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. The weather out there is getting ugly. The most powerful storm to ever hit the Bahamas crawled its way through the islands, at times coming to a complete standstill. Record-breaking temperatures are causing problems across much of Europe, and it's set to get even hotter. It's been another relentless day for firefighters, and the emergency is far from over. Living in such a disrupted climate can make us anxious and sad. Yeah, I think we're finally growing up as a society to the point that we can grieve. Mika Estrada is associate professor in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. She holds a PhD in social psychology from Harvard and does research on social influence, identity, values, and well-being. Grief can be a natural, healthy immune system response to a problem like climate disruption. Why are we grieving? Why do we care? We care because we love. Mark Coleman is a mindfulness and meditation teacher and author of Awaken the Wild, Mindfulness in Nature as a Path to Self-Discovery. His latest book is From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness. I began our conversation about climate anxiety by asking Mark about an experience he had on a ridgetop north of San Francisco during the wildfires of late 2018. The irony was I'd just been asked to write an article on uh, meditation in nature and I thought well best place to write it is to go in nature so I took my laptop at the top of a hill on the ridge in uh, Marin County which is north of San Francisco and there's this howling uh, Pacific wind coming in which is very normal um, cooled foggy breeze and it was very invigorating and I was riding away and then suddenly I started to look around in the valleys and it started to fill up with smoke. And I thought, that's weird. I'm getting this fresh Pacific wind, but the smoke coming in, and suddenly the whole Bay Area is full of smoke. And I was mystified by that. And also it was just such a poignant moment of the one going into nature for refuge and solace, and at the same time being reminded of the fires and the climate crisis. And what I found out was that the smoke was coming in from the fires from British Columbia being blown downstream into the Bay Area. And then I traveled later that year, to, later that month actually, to Colorado and then to the, into Europe, into the Alps. And I was following or being you know, present to a lot of forest fires everywhere I went in the mountains. And it was just really brought to light, as it had for many of us in the last couple of years in California, just how uh, imminent the crisis is. And I think that was really a breakthrough moment. Fires were really the story of, of 2018. And for, you know, there's some... Uh, climate crises that are outside of us, but the smoke and the fires are something that we actually breathe into mm. our body. We were doing it for weeks. So I don't know, there's something for me about that internalization that was different than yeah. something that happens outside far away. Mika Strada, uh, when you were uh, in college and afterwards, um, climate was not your thing. You were into homelessness and social justice issue and kind of, but then you came to climate. Tell us that story. Yeah, I was um, a undergraduate at UC Berkeley, and I was interested in issues of homelessness and, and how we can beat poverty. I was interested in conflict resolution work, and I was working with, um, there's a homeless pro program that was with the PERGS, Public Interest Research Group. And when I finished my degree, it turned out that the PERGS had jobs, and so I took one and went to Boston and worked for the Public Interest Research Groups there and got thrust into environmental 
um, advocacy and learning about lobbying and all of that type of things. But I have to say that it's still not my core issue. Like I have concern for the climate, you know, and I have my solar panels and all of those types of things. I try and do what I can, but I have a deep heart for people suffering needlessly. And is there a way for us to avoid people suffering needlessly? And what I have found is that over across time that there has been a convergence where you realize that most of the violence in the world is caused because of disputes over water or over resources. And the use of those resources are also um, contributing towards our climate change. And so they... And when the climate does change, when we have this disruption happening, the, the communities that are most impacted are the vulnerable populations, people who don't have air conditioners, who are living or working outside. Those are the populations that are getting, feeling the impacts of climate change more in the United States now than those who have air conditioning and who live in, inside and work inside. And in the world, uh, that's also true. The vulnerable populations have lower socioeconomic status worldwide and they're feeling the impacts. So, so I see them as you can't take them apart from each other anymore. You have, if we don't deal with one, we're going to have impacts in both directions. So climate is often an abstraction and it's becoming more of a human issue. Do you talk about climate with people who are concerned about homelessness or, or social justice issues? Cause that's often seen as like climate's either, I don't know, it's an elite problem or it's far away. Yeah. It's, it's, it's abstract. Um, you know, the, uh, I'll tell you a story. When I was working for the Pergs, I was supposed to help organize this annual conference for all the people that are working for the Pergs in across the nation. And this was in 1985, 86. And at that time, Cesar Chavez was starting to do some work where he was going to environmental groups, which were predominantly white. And he was trying to get them to support uh, reducing pesticides because that was impacting the farm workers. And so my job was to get him there and to get him in the room. And, and I had met him a couple times because of my parents being involved in the United Farm Workers Movement. I'm a Latina, Mexican-American, and we had been involved in that. So we're sitting outside. The room's filled with like four or 500 people, mostly all white. I would say, you know, 99% white. And uh, we're sitting outside and, and, he, we started talking and I was telling about my family and, and you know, and, we, and he just looks up at me and he says, what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing here? And I knew what he meant. Like, what are we doing here really? But I think that, um, you know, it's really important for us to be communicating. This is a big problem. It's not going to be solved from one place and from one ethnic group. And in fact, I think the underrepresented groups, most of the underrepresented groups in, in, uh, the United States have a different relationship with nature. And I would say from my own background as a Latina, nature is something that we feel is a part of us. It's an extension of us. And to exploit it is to, to really be doing harm to ourselves. So I feel like um, this is an issue where I feel like the people of color in our nation right now have a unique voice and opportunity to really solve some of these problems. And I actually believe that's where the solutions are going to come from. Mark Coleman, how do you talk about climate? How has the way you talk about climate changed over the last five, 10 years? Yeah. So my work is mostly 
uh, as a meditation teacher. So I'm teaching meditators. My work is mostly done outside in nature in the wilderness. And uh, 10 years ago, I talk about climate and I would feel the whole room just glaze over. There'd be this gray sort of gloom checking out. I'm like, oh, that's really not landing very well. And then five years ago, I was like, mm, there's a little more interest. Now, when I speak about it, people want to know. People want to engage. People want solutions. They want to process how to feel, how to navigate both personally, socially, community-wide. So um, for me, the, the, I mean, there's different, many different sort of doorways in. Um, I try to speak about it as, uh, so my work is taking people out into nature, as you were saying, realizing we're, we're, we're not separate, that we are the earth, that polluting the, the air, the water, whatever, is harming ourselves. So uh, the more that we can connect with uh, that relationship or that understanding of our connection, the more that we feel, the more that we will care, the more that we love. Um, so um, there's an interesting, I, I'm using this the reference from a, an Australian eco-psychologist uses this word solostalgia, uh, which is a combination of two Greek words. Basically, uh, what it means is, uh, grief for the place that we're in. And we used to go out into nature for solace, beauty, refuge, nourishment. And of course, we still do, we still can. And yet when we go outdoors, as, as we do when there's fires or we, we're seeing the degradation of you know, the waters or whatever, there's also a sense of grief and despair or sadness or loss. Especially if we love, we're grieving for that which we're losing. And so um, I speak about how to hold the, the personal pain of that, to feel it, to allow it, to notice the, both the love and the grief, and then also to listen for, well, what, what's the response? What, what, what arises in you in that loving connection that makes you want to act in a more uh, effective way, both personally and also socially and politically? A few years ago, two women, feeling that they and their peers didn't have an outlet for their heavy feelings, founded the Good Grief Network. They've created a 10-step program inspired by Alcoholics Anonymous, groups of people coming together to talk about their fears and anxieties related to a world out of balance. We spoke to Amy Lewis Rao and Laura Schmidt about how their model can help people come out of the despair and process their climate anxiety. What I think we're seeing a lot of is a new level of despair from folks who are not sure what to do. And that can look like grief or depression. The problem of climate change is that we don't have a roadmap. We don't have a picture of what it looks like to get us out of this mess. And that terrifies many of us. We have a lot of parents come through our group who say they didn't really pay attention to these issues. And now that they have kids, they're worried that their kids' future is not going to look like what they thought it would, and it's causing an existential crisis, if you will. We have grandparents who come in. We have tired activists who have been working their whole lives to affect change and realizing that climate change now maybe makes the work that they've been doing for their lifetime a moot point. We have people who are in careers right now and they're wondering if that's the best way to be spending their time because if it's not completely trying to tackle these predicaments that are facing us, why are they showing up to their nine to five? 
Our 10-step program is scalable and anybody can bring it home to their community. The most basic aspect of this program is that it brings people together in a safe space to talk about our fears. And once we mention our fears in a public way, it doesn't have power over us anymore, or at least it has less power over us. You know, we don't shy away from the hard stuff. We don't say, don't cry. And it's so important to be feeling what's happening in the world and to wake up to that despair and also not to be controlled by it. I can't even begin to express the amount of weight that's lifted off of our participants' shoulders when they, we give them permission that they solely don't have to save the world. Not only they don't have to, they can't. And that's so hard for so many of us to accept. We want to believe we can be the superhero that saves the world. And many, plenty of people will point to great leaders and I always say yes, and they didn't do it alone. That was Amy Lewis, Rao, and Laura Schmidt, co-founders of the Good Grief Network. So Mika Estrada, your thoughts there on the you know, relieving the burden of being the hero that saves the world and anything else you found moving in, in that piece? Yeah, I think we're finally growing up as a society to the point that we can grieve. You know, that I think for a long time that was seen as a weakness. And I think we're finally hitting an age where grief is seen as a strength. If you have the power to allow yourself to grieve, that is, that is real power. And to not feel that, what does that mean? There's a lot of talk about the colonization of our minds, right? The co colonization of our minds and how we've been... When you think of that, you think of kind of the movement of the white dominant culture into the new world and what that did. And part of that required people to do great harm to other people and to our land and to not hurt too much while doing it. And in the process of that, that means to feel grief around that would be a weakness, right? If everybody who came over here and started doing all of that, started feeling all that, all the grief of what they were actually perpetrating, um, there would have been a great cost to that. And so I think we have lived in a time when the dominant culture says don't feel too much. And I do feel like we're finally growing up and saying, listen, real strength is being able to feel what we're feeling. And from there, from really feeling and taking it in and holding it in your heart and knowing that pain and, and letting it, then it can move through you. And anybody who does work on grief knows that to go into denial and try not to feel it only gets you so far um, until you start getting sick and start feeling really badly about it. So to hold that and to find practices that allow you to, to feel it, but then to let it let it go, I think is really powerful. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we are at an age now where we can recognize that that is a beautiful and powerful thing and necessary for us to do the next step, which is to act. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside, oh yeah. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about balancing joy and despair in a disrupted climate. Coming up, we'll learn more about how to both accept and confront the carbon challenge. It's about facing reality. It's about feeling your response to that. And then taking that, that data, the outer and the inner data, and then going, well, what's my response? What, what's the most effective thing I can do with my time, energy, resources? That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about living in an age of climate anxiety with Mika Estrada, 
Professor of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco, and Mark Coleman, author of Awaken the Wild, Mindfulness in Nature as a Path of Self-Discovery. Now, how to recognize being afraid of increasingly extreme weather without being paralyzed by that fear. So I want to take a step back. So why are we grieving? Why do we care? We care because we love, right? We, we love this planet. We love this earth. We love all of the, the abundance and the beauty and the diversity and complexity. Because we love, we feel the pain. We feel the grief. The grief is a natural, healthy immune system response to a problem. So we're feeling the collective grief of a collective issue. And so grief is actually a natural, healthy step in that uh, meeting that challenging situation. We don't, of course, stop there, but that does allow us to feel, process, and actually be more integrated in our action. Of course, we need to respond quickly and uh, efficiently, but if we're reacting out of fear or anger, you know, as you said, we don't, our prefrontal cortex goes offline when, when we're triggered in fight or flight. So the more that we can actually we take a step back, feel, grieve, notice what's happening, we're much more likely to come out with a clear and effective response that's also more sustainable. When we keep shoving and stuffing the grief and the anger and the rage, you know, I've worked with activists for 20 years now, a lot of environmental activists, and I meet a lot of burnt-out environmental activists, mm -hmm. partly because of the immensity of the problem, partly also because I think people haven't been trained how to also do the inner work, which I talk about as inner sustainability. We need both the outer and the inner sustainability, because this is a long-term marathon situation that we're in. It's not going to be solved in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Mika Strada, you know, shame and blame is often a common tactic in environmentalism and in our politics today. There's sort of these, you know, shame mobs on outrage mobs on social media, et cetera. Um, and sometimes they can be very satisfying, let's admit it. Um, and, uh, but you think that that's really detrimental. Tell us about shame and blame. I think shame and blame are another way of locking people down. So when you start to play this game of shaming and blaming, what you're doing is you're breaking connection and relationship with another person and with your environment and with your group. And, and as Mark said, one of the things that we have that helps when we're feeling fear, when we're feeling grief, when we're feeling these things is our social networks and our social connections. And to the extent that we can keep those connections going it helps us. I mean, there's, there, for instance, there's studies that if you put somebody into a high stress, um, fearful situation and you put them in the room with one other person, they do better than if they're by themselves. So if you have another person to kind of share, share it with you. So I think the shame and blame, what that does is it breaks relationships with people around you and it can lead to greater isolation. And in terms of groups doing that to each other, this is a big problem. This is a big global issue and we are going to have to solve it together. And when you use shame and blame, you're starting to divide and that means that we are not more interconnected and we're less able to solve these problems collectively. And another aspect of that is that blaming is, you know, is the retribution and forgiveness. So a lot of people want to, you know, hold oil companies accountable. You know, you've devastated the, this ecosystem. Or is it the South Africa route of sort of acceptance and reconciliation? <laughs> yeah. So um, I think what you're talking about is so when I was doing, I did some research on forgiveness. And one of the things that I found 
when I was looking at this was that when people have a conflict with somebody and they want to reconcile or they want to forgive, they, they weigh two things. They weigh how important is it to keep the relationship going and how important is it to be right or to get justice. And so if you can think of a situation where you wanted to forgive somebody and you didn't, let's say they didn't pay me back the money they owed or they didn't do something that, that I wanted that would make it right. Um, if you're very justice-oriented, you will, you will deny the relationship in order to maintain your sense of justice. And if you think the relationship's really important, you will sometimes forego getting the justified outcome to maintain that relationship. So we weigh these things, I think, in, um, in our lives. And so when you seek retribution, you are saying, I don't want relationship. I'm going to choose. I need to be right more than I need to be in relationship with you. And the question is, in solving the climate, tr the climate um, issues that we have, what's going to serve us better? Is it going to be a relationship with each other or is it going to be being right? And do social me media relationships count? You know, yeah, I think they do. Absolutely. And it's hard. You know, I, I'm terrible on Twitter. I've got to admit it. Like I go on Twitter and I'm just like, the worst self comes out in me. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that's because it's more anonymous. Sure. So yeah. the more anonymous it is, the more angry and hateful we can be. And we're not our best selves. And like I said earlier, I think we have to be our best selves to solve this problem. It's so big and it requires us to be our best selves. We're going to go to our lightning round. I just have some quick questions for you, beginning with uh, Mark Coleman. What's the first thing that comes to your mind uh, when I mention flight shaming? Guilty. <laughs> 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 well, I get shamed a lot. That's <laughs> Mika Estrada, what comes to mind when I say empathy for workers in the fossil fuel industry? Our higher selves. Mika, what comes to mind when I say empathy for executives of fossil fuel corporations? Yeah, I think I'm still going to my higher self <laughs> on that higher one. Self, Even yeah. higher self, yeah. Even higher self, yeah. Compassion. I feel, so, I feel badly. I feel badly for them, actually, because they are doing incredible harm, and, and uh, at some level, I think they know it. Mark Coleman, what comes to mind when I say Charles Koch? The pain of misguided power. And, and its destructiveness. Mika Estrada, EPA Administrator, Andrew Wheeler. <laughs> I can't say what came to mind first. <laughs> um, sad. I feel really sad. True or false, uh, Mika Estrada, you sometimes fantasize about escaping climate chaos and finding a haven far away. About once a week. <laughs> yeah, I want to just move to the woods and go away. But my higher self says, I have some work to do in the world. True or false, Mark Coleman, you sometimes fantasize about escaping climate chaos and finding a haven far away. I do that regularly on my retreats. More, more than once a week? <laughs> uh, I teach um, probably a couple of times a month somewhere in the woods. So yes, true. True or false, Mika Estrada, you're willing to share the location of your haven with us. <laughs> I don't have one right now. Well, I guess I go to Humboldt sometimes. Mark, you willing to share the location of your haven? Where should we go? The closest place of nature. Nature's everywhere. So. Yeah. True or false, Mark Coleman, you sometimes tell people you are more optimistic about stabilizing the climate than you really are. Yes. And I'm actually really agnostic. I, I remain optimistic. I really ma I maintain a don't know mind. Like, Anything is possible, and we can go both in both directions, and we don't know. 
We're, it's uh, that's what's it's so amazing living at this time. We have this potential to potentially resolve some of these crises, and we may step up in time as a species, and we might not. Mika Strata, true or false? Men are good at faking it. <laughs> men are good at faking it. Hope or optimism. Uh, yeah. I think men are rewarded for faking it. <laughs> Let's give a round of applause for them getting through the lightning round. That was so <clears throat> that was good. <laughs> If you're just joining us, we're talking about climate anxiety, how you can hold the gravity of the science and still get out of bed and enjoy your day. Our guests on the show today are suggest going inward to get calm and then getting active. Mark Coleman is a mindfulness meditation teacher and author of Awaken the Wild. And Mika Estrada is a social psychologist and associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. Mark Coleman, conservation, you know, there's sort of a relationship to nature that we want it to be a certain way for us. I think about the, you know, when a fire ripped through uh, Yellowstone Park uh, a couple decades ago. People were devastated because Yellowstone was black and ugly. It wasn't green like we wanted it to be for us. What are your thoughts about sort of wanting to have nature as we want it for us versus for some other reason? Sort of ego involved in conservation. Yeah, yeah. Like we want everything as we want it, like (laughs) life and people and wealth or and the earth. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think we bring an acquisitive consumer attitude to everything because that's the that's our conditioning and um what's profound about nature which is why i do so much of my teaching out there and practice out there is that nature doesn't care what we want doesn't care about our preferences doesn't care about us particularly it's just doing its wild thing and so it's a great teacher in in revealing to us our attachments our preferences our desires and then it's asking us that's all that's all natural and human and can we actually be present with it as it is and learn from it as it is? So, for example, I was down in Big Sur a few years ago teaching, <clears throat> and uh, the fires came right down to the creeks, down to the coast. And there's this beautiful redwood creek um, that was uh, charred by the fire, wasn't destroyed because the redwoods are so old and so protective with the tannin in the box. And, but the, the, the whole valley was blackened and then there was these amazing green emerald shoots coming out of the blackened box and of course i wanted to see a virgin redwood forest but i was seeing fire and uh resilience and so um we we think i'm going to be happy if i get what i want happiness comes from being able to be with what is and meet it and accept it and allow it. And when we can do that, like walking through a, a charred forest, as painful as that is, we can also actually appreciate what its gift is or what it's teaching us or what it's telling us. So does that acceptance lead to resignation and passivity? Yeah, well, that's the concern, right? Oh, I'm just going to accept, oh, you know, there's more fires and there's the acidification in the oceans and there's, you know, whatever the, the data that we're reading. No, the, the, the acceptance is just acknowledging this is what's happening. This is true. It's about not sticking your head in the sand. It's about facing reality. It's about feeling your response to that and then taking that, that data, the outer and the inner data, and then going, well, what's my response? What, what's needed? How can I serve what's the most effective thing I can do with my time, energy, resources. So really, actually, the acceptance leads to clarity because what we're suffering from now is, and we've been suffering from for centuries, is a, is a lack of uh, understanding about what's true. 
And so if, when we can bring that quality of acceptance, we can see it, understand it, get to know it, wrestle with it, grapple with it, and then go, okay, here's a possible path forward. Some people feel there's such an urgency in climate. You know, we keep hearing, how many times have we heard 11 years, 10 years, 12 years because of the recent IPCC report? So how people, I think a lot of people concerned about climate feel that urgency and feel like we got to solve it fast. We got to go, 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 let's go. Mm -hmm. And people might say, this mindfulness thing sounds good, but you know, it just takes too long. Right. We don't have time to like sit and be quiet. We got to like get off our butts and get moving. Yeah. So what do you say to that, Mark Coleman? They're like, yeah, that's nice for if you're a coastal person, but we got to get going and shut down, you know, change. That's no time to like sit in the woods on your butt. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, there's definitely validity to that point of view. And um, we are in a crisis and it does require urgent action. And we don't have to go off to a cave for 10 years to meditate, to be mindful, to, uh, to deal with that. We can take, you know, five minutes. Like I often say you know, before a meeting, you know, take a minute where you just get quiet. You just get clear about your intention. You take some breaths. You feel your body. It doesn't take long to actually get present. If we're just running on fear, panic, time scarcity, drivenness, we don't think the best. The brain needs a little bit of space, a little bit of calm, a little bit of present. And that doesn't require a lot of training. It requires taking a minute or five minutes or walking outside, taking a walk around the block, um, feeling your breath. Um, just to get enough composure and clarity so the static, our brains are full of busy, restless static. And that's not where the deeper solutions come from. It comes from a deeper, quieter, present ability to, act, to, act, to access deeper parts of our intelligence, our intuition, our wisdom. And that requires a little bit of stillness and calm. As I say, it doesn't require going off on a long you know, sabbatical for five years, but, but finding some basic, simple tools that allow you to settle calm and ground so then your brain can actually uh, be more effective and you can actually make wiser, clearer decisions. And, it's, and that's accessible for anybody. It's, it's not little, esoteric. Little books by Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, how to sit, how to walk. They're very useful. It's sort of like you don't have to go sit for hours or days. There's ways you can kind of, the books are really useful to sort of, yeah, just walking down. Sure, Mika. I was going to say that um, I think one of the most powerful things we can do is to figure out where our consciousness goes when we rest, like in the pauses of our day. Where does your consciousness go? And if you can start to practice laying your consciousness in places like what Mark's talking about, where your nervous system feels rested, even if it means imagining one of your happiest places, if you do that for a minute or two or even less, 30 seconds in the pauses of your day, that starts to slow down your day, calms your nervous system, lets your brain work a little more effectively. And so that's just something we can practice every day. Where does it go? Do you start to worry about something immediately? When you have a pause, where does your mind go? Where does your consciousness let rest? I think that would be a powerful practice. Yeah, and I think for me, it, it comes back to this idea of inner sustainability. How do we sustain ourselves given we're living in times of climate emergency? So. Our mind can be spinning moment after moment on fear and panic and dread. And, and we can ask ourselves, is that the most effective place for my mind to be spinning? Or can, as Mika is saying, shift our attention to, like when I was walking towards here, this building, at five or ten minutes, right, I could be worrying and, and planning and anxious about what, you know, how, what, what, how it's going to go, what I'm going to say. Or I can actually be present, look at the trees, look at the sky. I was watching a beautiful flight of pelicans on the water, you know, above the traffic. 
And uh, that was really calming and grounding. Like it didn't take any extra time, didn't take any training. It's just about what are we doing with our attention and is it serving us, right? And when we need to be looking and focusing on strategy and planning and action, that's when we focus. When that's not happening, am I drowning in data and overwhelming myself or am I actually choosing things for my attention to focus on, like the fact that it's a beautiful summer's day here, that actually allows me to feel a sense of peace and calm. So then when I come in here at 6.30, I'm actually more ready for, f to engage in a clear way. I wish that I had that a few years ago when there were droughts in California and uh, it didn't rain for some of the winters and there were some beautiful days during February. And I remember people be like, ah, oh, isn't this day great? This beautiful February. Woo, you know, this feels like summer. I'm like, yeah, you know, the climate really shouldn't be like this. Yeah, this is really bad news. And I got to shut up. Don't be that guy. You'll let people enjoy the day. And I was like, yeah, this is great. But. Right. Well, both are true. Both, both are true. true. Right. Both are true. It is, it is a sign that things are not in great shape and it's a beautiful day. And I think if you can hold both of those things simultaneously, that's a, that's a gift. It's a beautiful day. You're listening to a conversation about dealing with the anxiety of climate disruption. This is Climate One. Coming up, We'll hear more about how community can be the key to getting people to act on climate. Our education process was not just about getting the facts, but also making it visible, the invisible, which was that there was a lot of concern. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about balancing joy and despair in the age of climate change with meditation and mindfulness teacher Mark Coleman, author of Awaken the Wild, and Mika Estrada, professor of social and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. Mika has worked with civic leaders in San Diego, a city that leans to the political right, to help guide them in their own climate conversations. I did work with leaders in San Diego, and we had climate education partners. We were doing uh, education for leaders in San Diego in a way that built community and integration. And the work with the docents had to do with um, the Snoki is, is the program that did that. And I was friends with the people who did it, but I didn't do it. But what they found was that the docents um, were being feeling trauma, learning about climate change, and then they have to go tell other people about it. And that is just really, really Children hard. often. Yeah. Children, right. <clears throat> and, um, and actually, I was just talking to someone yesterday who was saying that they were doing work with teachers, because grade school teachers also, with the new science curriculum, they have a lot of climate change science, and their and they're, teachers who are embracing that are telling the students about this. And when students learn it, it's not like Greta, it's just like Greta, right? They get it. They get that there's where we are in a situation. And so, um, but the teachers are feeling traumatized by having to convey this information. Mm -hmm. The work that was done with the docents, they found that by not only teaching them the facts about climate change, but also helping them to walk through the grieving process, enabled them to better be able to communicate with people and not get locked down and not be able to talk to people about about climate change. And so, and, and it made them feel uh, more agency in it. And then tell us about your work with some leaders in San Diego in terms of, you know, how these are policy leaders, often running large institutions. Uh, tell us about that work and how, because San Diego, pretty conservative place, Navy town. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really interesting when we started this project. One of the things we did is we interviewed 80 leaders in San Diego and, and we really had some pretty high tiered leaders that we met with. And one of the key things that we found in that initial 
interviews was that we asked them, are you, do you feel, consider yourself a part of the community that's concerned about climate change? And in San Diego, which is, is conservative, um, we had 90% say, yeah, I'm a part of that community that's concerned about climate change. And then we asked them, well, how many, well, what do you think about the other leaders in San Diego? What percentage do you think of the other leaders um, are concerned about climate change? About 10%. <laughs> And so what this told us uh, was that the leaders didn't know about the other leaders that were concerned about climate change and that people weren't really recognizing that they had a community of leaders out there that they could be a part of. And so our education uh, process was not just about getting the facts, but also making it visible, the invisible, which was that there was a lot of concern. And so all of our, our videos and our reports and everything had, other, had leaders talking to other leaders and outing. And I remember we saw, we had a, this video that you can find on YouTube that, that showed one of the mayors uh, from Chula Vista stating that she was concerned about climate change and talking about it. And one of her aides was in the audience and said, I never thought she'd go on film with that. And so, um, so we, normalizing it among peers, normalizing it around peers and recognizing that nobody is alone. And one of the exciting things that happened during our, our, um, program was that San Diego, pa uh, passed a climate action plan and it was initially put together by a, uh, more liberal, uh, mayor and then the mayor switched and it went, we went to the Republicans and the Republican mayor is the one who signed it. And it's a very aggressive and, and good, I think, climate action plan. So we see bipartisan support now in San Diego for um, reducing CO2 emissions. And uh, identity, you've done research on identity, Mika, and so the importance of identity. I know that the word environmentalist, is that a dirty word it's still down there? Yeah, it is. I think it is. Um, I remember having uh, one of the interviews that I was doing, I was talking to somebody, he's, he's very high up, makes a lot of key decisions. And you know, I asked him about what things are you doing? And he could list up a million things that you would consider good environmental behaviors. And then at the very end, one of the questions I asked him is, so do you... If, if you consider yourself, to what extent are you an environmentalist? Oh, I'm not an environmentalist. There's no way. <laughs> and so, yeah, so what are we trying to identify with? Because that, I think environmentalists, there's a lot of evidence that that has a real um, connotation. So even if you're concerned about climate change, you may not be an environmentalist. And Mika, you used to be a vegetarian, and you're, but you're not now. So let's talk about sort of, you know, the personal actions. We get to this oftentimes, and there's, we can debate whether the, the importance of personal action. But tell us about your, your path from vegetarian to no longer. Yeah, it was bacon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I, um, it, was a, it was the last thing I gave up, and uh, the, my, my sweetheart likes bacon, and I, one day I just couldn't say no, and I had some, and it was kind of my slide back in. And I'm actually sliding back towards vegetarianism again. I think uh, at this point I'm, I'm not, I, well, I've never, I haven't eaten uh, beef for 30 years, but um, I'm starting to move back towards pescatarian, I think is where I'm going to land. So, and it's mostly, when I stopped, it was because initially when I became a vegetarian, it was because of environmental issues. And I had written a report on Sogram when I was in college, and that kind of knocked me out from the whole like beef industry. So yeah, I think we all do this though. I mean, what you're bringing up is the issue of how do we stay in alignment with our values and what we think is really important and what is the cost of not being in alignment and how hard is it to stay in alignment? And for me, my sons, I have three sons and they were, they're teenagers and now they're older, but 
they wanted meat and I was like eating by myself all the time. So, but I, I think as my youngest graduates this year, I can fly back into my vegetarianism. It'll be easier. <laughs> Mark, how about you? I mean, obviously a lot of uh, Buddhists are, are do no harm vegetarians. Is that a requirement? Cause there's this, this kind of this debate in climate world about, Oh, how, vir you know, virtue competition, like purity competition and purity police. Right. Yeah. No, it's same in the world. I move in. Um, so I'm, I basically try and do as plant-based diet as possible. My body likes meat, just does. It functions better. I have friends who eat... English steak. after all. I'm so. English. You know, meat and veg is like the staple <laughs> diet. And um, so I was vegetarian for 15, 17 years. I got really sick in India and I was traveling and studying in Asia a lot. And I found that I needed to eat meat. Then I went off it. So I'm really like as plant-based as possible. And then when my body's craving something, I'll listen to that because we also got to take care of this. Right. Yeah. So, but I think if, I mean, given how much meat people eat in this country, for example, even if that was halved, there'd be a rest, like taking what, 7 million cars off the road or something. Yeah. So if we can just think about, do I actually really, like, I, I'm always amazed when I go like to a buffet or, you know, anywhere really. And there's just, the choice is chicken, pork, and beef. And like, and it's like, we do it so unconsciously. So I think when we bring awareness do I want it? Does my body actually want to eat this meat? What about, I, you know, uh, I was just in teaching in Bhutan recently, and they were talking about, and it's mostly vegetarian culture, and they were saying, if I do eat meat, I have to go really, I have to be really unmindful. I have to be really unaware of what I'm doing, because yeah. if I really think about this as a chicken with a beautiful body of feathers, I'm not going to eat it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we have to listen to our body, and we have to have to listen to the impact of what any action that we do. Mika Estrada, we're overwhelmed with headlines these days. It's Dorian now. It's going to, who knows, I'll keep waiting for the fires to come. How, you know, we, there's a lot of conversation these days about how people consume news and, and what news they consume. Would, how do you consume climate news? And do you kind of, are you like a moth to the flame? You know, or do you like, I know, I guess we learned earlier, climate's not your thing. Um, <laughs> uh, do you limit the amount that you intake and how do you intake it? Yeah, I um, I find it being less visual helps, and hearing it or reading it is easier um, to my system. I was podcast. That's yeah, podcast. Okay, yeah, podcast. I, <laughs> I was currently just reading this great book called Sacred Instructions, and they had the the uh, ten ten eighty rule, which I really resonated with me, which was to spend ten percent of your time staying knowledgeable about what's happening in the world, spend ten percent of your time thinking about how do you, or, or addressing kind of some of the causes or the negative things that are happening, so doing something to stop the negativity, and then spending 80% of your time working towards a solution or towards the good that you want to create. So creating the good and not just stopping the bad. Mm. And I really like that idea of, of not, well, I want to ha know what's happening in the world, and sometimes it's through podcasts or sometimes it's listening to um, Democracy Now! or um, sometimes it's reading. I like to I actually like to go on Fox News and see what's going on there. So I like looking at kind of all the news online. Um, but not to, but do that in a small section. I also like the um, good news um, that has, and I like reading that in the morning because there's some, a dose of good news in the morning is good because there's a lot of good that happens. And what sells is negative. Um, and that does, it's disproportionately shown because we attend to what's negative. That's, that's how our brains work. They know that we're more likely to attend if there's a crisis than if something good's happening. So I, I break that and try and focus on what also good is happening. We'll go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. 
Hi, I'm Lindsay. Uh, thank you so much for the work that you both do. My question is, um, I would love a recommendation for a specific practice. Uh, I teach an environmental philosophy and justice class for high school students. And one of the activities that we do in class is students write an apology letter to the human or non-human entity of their choice. So um, it's they're really intense to read. They're really intense for students to write. So I've read apology letters to glaciers, to roadkill, um, to people who, whose homes are being washed away. And this idea came to me from an anthropologist named Deborah Bird Rose, who's incredible. And she writes about um, indigenous ab Aboriginal Australians and the way that they think of themselves as descendants from dingoes. And they will return to dingoes versus settler uh, non-native Australians who see dingoes as existential threats to their cattle and literally hang their bodies up by, from trees. Um, and she asked the question, what would it be like if we apologized, as if non-native Australians apologized to dingoes? And so this activity has been really powerful. And I'm, you know, part of the work in this class is what you're talking about, which is how do you get into the despair, but also not succumb to it. And, and these are, you know, 16, 17, 18 year olds. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about a ritual or short practice that could be done regularly or after an activity like this? Uh, well, one, I just want to acknowledge what a profound and beautiful practice that you're offering to these kids. And I think we could all do with reflecting on for ourselves around what would we apologize or ask for forgiveness for, because we're all, you know, implicit in, in any, any and everything that we do. The, what comes to mind is compassion, some form of compassion practice or some kind of, um, so there's the, there's the asking of forgiveness, which can bring up a lot of shame and guilt and maybe hate self-hatred. Um, and so um, I would suggest some kind of uh, self-compassion practice that's uh, m allowing them to meet the pain of what comes up, the pain that's triggered the pain, maybe feeling complicit, um, that allows them to hold that pain or sadness or loss or grief uh, with some kindness. Because it's very easy to go from acknowledging, say, complicity in actions, right, to then judging and hating. And that's not going to, that just, that just shuts, shuts us down in so many different ways, doesn't lead to constructive action. So if we can actually hold the suffering of that with care and kindness, it's actually more, more likely to lead to positive outcome and action. But first, we need to feel the pain of that, right? And have some practice to, you know, sensing the body, sensing the heart, uh, feeling what the emotion is. Ask, you know, asking them to really attune, uh, and also asking what's needed, what will serve this pain or this difficulty or this distress. So there's some sense of holding it, and also some way to move with it. So self -com and there's lots of great research around self-compassion and its efficacy. I'd, I'd point you to Kristen Neff's work. And she has lots of good practices, um, mindful self-compassion. Next question, welcome. Hi, my name's Carter Brooks. Um, the, the avoidance of the despair in the general activist world is still very dramatic and very strong. Um, and we talked about the sort of climate hero thing, and it's often given with the 10 things you can do, and they're all kind of things like, if you don't do this, you're not going to save the climate, be a climate hero. So <clears throat> in thinking about this conversation, which is fantastic, by the way, um, if you were to rewrite those 10 things or just a few of them from a different perspective, um, you know, something more along the lines of being comfortable with uncertainty or practice engaging your grief or any of those sorts of things, what, what would be your top few? Well, we can play, but yeah. my first one would be to make sure, this is my bias, 
you're in very intimate living contact with the natural breathing world. Like you're actually, th that's what's fueling your care, your passion, your action, right? So I wouldn't stop there, obviously, but the first one would be to have that alive connection. Um, the second one, and I was just kind of, I want to echo uh, one of Mika's comments, is um, focus on uh, what positive, constructive action, movements, organizations, initiatives that are happening. There's so much, as, as you said, negative bias in the media, and there's so much amazing things happening. Um, so it would be tapping into, uh, you know, and, and supporting in whatever way you can what's already happening, because there's a tremendous amount happening. We don't have to be the leader. We can also be the supporter or the, or the um, you know, just tap into the many, many sources. Can I throw one in? Please, and we're okay. just playing, so <laughs> I, I don't have 10. But <laughs> yes, so I will say that I wrote about this on the a Psychology Today blog because I, I wanted yeah. to think about this before getting here, but one of the things that I thought was really important for people who are concerned about climate change is, is um, and who have despair and, and really understand it is to find practices that help you to relax your nervous system mm. and that allow you to let go of the fear for a little bit so that you can restore for action. So I think that w what my experience working with environmentalists um, when I was younger was that people were uh, really militant and just like wound up and and they can only sustain it so long. And I think about the people I worked with when I was in my 20s, the number of them that are still doing environmental work are just hardly at all because it's so hard to live like that. And so there was an old um, Chicano uh, worker who told me once, you know, you got to wear good shoes because you're going to be marching a long time. Mm -hmm. And that's true for people who are, who are environmentalists or people who are concerned about this and who are working on it is that what are the daily practices that help you to stay a balanced individual? Mm -hmm. Is it being in nature? Is it meditating? Mm -hmm. Is it writing? Is it taking a hot bath? Is it doing exercise? Is it eating well? Is it being with somebody that you love and care? You know, what are the things that restore you as a human being and help you to really listen to the truth that's inside of you so that you can lean into that truth and live it on a daily basis? We've been talking about balancing joy and despair in an age of climate anxiety with Mika Estrada, a professor of social and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. She's doing research on social influence, identity, values, and well-being. And Mark Coleman, a mindfulness and meditation teacher and author of Awaken the Wild, Mindfulness and Nature as a Path of Self-Discovery. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>